0: from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. This morning, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And it is a long chapter, and in my opinion, it is a fantastically great chapter. There is all kinds of drama in the story, uh, there's some comedy. There's uh, some humor. I, th- I think John writes it fantastically. There's irony. Uh, the scene shifts are easy to see. It's just, it's just a, a, a just from a story standpoint, it's, it's, it's amazingly written. But it also has, as we will see, some deep uh, theological implications. There's a lot of teaching that happens here. Just quickly, since we're jumping back to John, we are at the end. Of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. And we're going to pick it up and read all the way through John all the way through chapter nine. It is a long chapter, but we need to read all of it to understand and set the stage. So this is what God's word says. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and came back seen. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So they said again to the blind man, "'What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes?' He said, "'He is a prophet.'" The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, "'Is this your son who you say was born blind?' How then does he now see?' His parents answered, "'We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know.'" Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying... If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, and that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you are blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Amazing story. Just an amazing story. And as we read through that, what we're really seeing is what happens when light comes into the world. And so this morning, as we work through this, and I'm going to be mindful of time because there's, we are providentially at a, a verse this morning that we're going to spend a little more time addressing than I normally would. But this morning, as, as we go through this, I just want you to notice three things about the light shining into the world. Number one, the light of Jesus brings healing he brings healing. And this is where we're going to spend a little more time than I normally would. Um, And I have been in contact with Amy and Mandy and so they, they are aware of this. I would never do this without talking to people first. But as the story begins we're told that Jesus is walking and he just passed by a man born blind. And at this point the disciples look at this man who was born blind, and we know he is born blind from birth. Verse 8 tells us that he was a beggar. If you were born blind, there really wasn't much else you could do. And so if you're standing on the street begging, everybody is going to see. And if you're begging, you're also going to say, hey, look, I didn't just lose my sight. I haven't been able to see my entire life. Will you please give me some money? Will you help me? So people go, how do How do they know? it?" it you, you would use it, right? If you're begging for money, you would use everything at your disposal to generate sympathy so that people will give to you. So the man is there. He's born blind. He's begging. And the disciples look and ask a question that I, I've kind of poked fun at at time. And when we read and we look at it, we kind of, there is some humor in it, and there is also some seriousness in it. They look at Jesus and say, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? Who sinned? He, he, he is blind, so did this man sin, or did his parents sin? Now, the question that they're asking is steeped in religious teaching of the day. Because the connection that they made was this. If you're suffering, if something is wrong with you, you can draw a line from the suffering directly to whatever sin you engaged in that caused the suffering. It was a straight line. There there was really no exceptions. One of the rabbinic teachings of the day says, there is no death without sin. There is no suffering without iniquity. That is what they believed. When you read the book of Job, and if you're, Elena and I are doing a chronological reading of the Bible this year, we're in the book of Job. Beautiful book to read, difficult book to read. Job, you you know the tragedy that befalls him. His friends come to comfort him. I don't care how many words they use, I don't care how beautiful the poetry is. The accusation from his friends are all the same. Job, you sinned, that's why you are in this position. Had you not sinned, you wouldn't be here. Confess to God what you have done, and he will bring back the riches, and all of Job's response is, guys, I didn't do it. Praise God, he gives us Job 1 and 2, that we know that Job is correct. However, we still have this teaching. The disciples look and say, who sinned? He's born blind. Who sinned? There has to be sin. Moreover, blindness in the list, if you were blind, that meant you didn't just... Casually sin. you did something grotesque that caused you to be be blind. So being blind, there was great sin, great suffering. But there's a problem. The problem is the man came into the world blind. So there's only two ways then to reckon, reckon this, right? Either he sinned, which is the comical aspect of it, a 18-week baby in the womb, sinned. I don't know how. No one knows how. Or, his parents sinned, and God, instead of punishing his parents, inflicted the punishment for the parents on their son. And caused the son to be born blind. I don't know about you, but neither one of those seem to relate to anything that we have read in Scripture. Babies in the uterus can't sin. While sin does affect other people, God does not look at your sin and punish someone else. So what are they going to do? What is the answer? Well, there's two answers, and, and one comes from the totality of Scripture. We have to go back all the way to Genesis 3. We read about Genesis 3, and we read about the fall, and we read about Adam's sin. And so then later we read in Scripture also that we're told that we all sin in Adam. What we see then is the consequences of Adam's sin is still felt today. Blindness, lameness, diseases of the world that that people have. It's a result of the fall. The problem for us, and where it becomes difficult for us, is there is no, and, and I've got three words here that I want you to look three adjectives. There is no simplistic, universal, and theological relationship between the effects of sin and suffering. There is not a simplistic, universal, theological answer. Right? We, we, we try to draw a link, but there's not. We know that there is a link in cases, right? John chapter 5, Jesus heals the man who has been laying at the pool, right? And what does Jesus say to him? Go and sin no more, that nothing worse may befall you. The man in John chapter 5 is there crippled because of a sin he committed. We understand this. It does happen. If you go to a bar and you become intoxicated, and you leave that bar and you drive drunk and you hit and kill somebody, that is the direct impact of your sin. There is a link. But now we're in John chapter 9, and we're going, all right, how does this link play out? Well, there's no universal principle now from John 5 that we can apply to John 9 because the man was born blind. Sometimes it is there, and you can see it. Sometimes it is not. And this is where it becomes very difficult for us. Because if we're not careful, we're going to be like the disciples. And I imagine that some of us actually have. We've seen people who are suffering and people who are in distress, and we think, all right, what did you do to cause this? Our, our, our Perhaps our default idea is you did something wrong. We don't want to say wrong, but you did something. But the implication is you did something wrong that has caused what you are going through now. What did you do to bring this on yourself? And we will be like the disciples as well. And look and sometimes say, well, the greater suffering you did, the greater thing you did to cause the suffering. See, we'll draw the line. And we'll make it a simple universal theological principle where a simple universal theological principle does not exist. And the insidious part of this if that's not bad enough, the insidious part of this is the remedy. Because the remedy says, since you sinned, Job's friends, Job, you sinned, confess your sin so that you can be healed. So when they say that to Job, when they say this to the blind man, go confess your sin. Now, I know it's not in Scripture, but I'm sure someone did. Go confess your sin so that you can be healed. What just happened? All the healing has been placed directly on the person who is suffering. So you're suffering, which is bad enough, you're going through this difficulty in your time where you don't understand. But not only is that bad enough, we're going to now add some guilt and shame to it and say, if you can just confess whatever sin you did to do this, you will be healed. Have you ever wondered when you look on TV or you read a book, or you hear somebody who is in the faith-healing movement, that that's exactly what they do? You want to be healed of this? Confess your sin, and you will be healed. Or if you confess the wrong sin? You ever thought about that? Let's just use the Ten Commandments. What if the sin that you committed is lying, has caused whatever you're suffering, but you confess the sin of stealing? Wrong sin, maybe God just overlooked that one, but for the lion, you know he's stricken you. what what do you do? What do you do? and you know what? we talked about this morning in Sunday school. we talked about pride, right? all in ourselves, man, we really like that because I can confess the sin, I can control it, I can heal myself right man that's 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 pride now now, now the problem is. We know that's not true. We absolutely know that it's not true. The people who claim it know it's not true. But sadly, it's a very lucrative claim, which is why they're riding around in G4s, and I've got an old minivan. And the G4 is a jet, by the way. Right? So what, so what do we do? So we know that from Genesis. But there's a second answer. And the second answer is from the lips of Jesus. Where Jesus looks at him, and and, and it's so wonderful that Jesus gives us this. It says, it was not this man that sinned or his parents. There it is. End of story. The simplistic universal link was broken right then. Who sinned? The man or his parents? Jesus says, no, neither one. Your thinking is completely wrong. Thank God that he does that. Because now we know that while, yes, we may sin and cause consequences, that there is going to be some suffering in our lives that's not going to have a link to our sin. Thank God now that we know that if somebody else sins, if if our wife or our husband or if our parents or if our cousin or uncle or friend sin, God's not going to look at me and punish me. Jesus says no. No. but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That part's difficult. Because again, that kind of brings us back and we read this and we go, we cheered that first part, but we're back to the second part, that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, so, so a very simplistic reading is, God, you inflicted this man. You did this, God. It, it's at your hands. And now we have a problem. Because we have God, what it looks like, well, let's just be honest, not being a very good God that we read about in Psalm 77. You know, and immediately, we've got to think deeper. Because a sound theology does not deny God's sovereignty. We will get there on a Wednesday night studying, knowing the God that you worship, we will discuss God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty means that God will bring His will in the world to be. It will happen. But what do we do right here? What do we do here? What do we do when we can't quite see the answer. And this is where I said we're going to spend a few more moments and, and we may end here this morning. I don't know. Because and again, I've spoken to Mandy and I've spoken to Amy and so they know this. This is a very real question for them. It's a very real question for us. Because we know them and we love them. What do we do? When we know a young boy who was born, not blind, but with GM1. What do we do? How how do we put the pieces together? Well, I, I, I want you, and, and is, this is not on the screen because this was a, a last minute edition. But I want you, if you're taking notes, you, you, you can go back and listen later. And maybe I'll, I'll drop them on Facebook or the website or somewhere. First of all, if you're suffering, there is no biblical justification for a stiff upper lip. There's just not. You do not have to act like you're not suffering. I mean, it's called suffering for a reason. <laughs> it, it, it hurts. It is okay to express your hurt. It is okay to express your pain. Do not let another believer in Christ tell you it's not. That is wrong. Cry well, weep, pour out your heart to God. The whole book of Job, again, Job is pouring out his heart to God. God, what did I do? My kids are dead. My fields have been decimated. My flocks are gone. My house has fallen down. My health is gone. God, I'm suffering. It hurts. And now I've got three of my closest friends bringing me such comfort as, Job, repent, confess your sin, and be healed. If the others weren't bad enough, thank you for bringing them to my house. Can they go now? He pours his heart out to God. And you know one of the most amazing things about the book of Job? You read through Job and you get all the way to the end. And what you realize and what God's word said, and all this Job did not sin. You get to the very end and when God finally speaks and Job, I can't remember if it's 37 or 36. When God finally speaks, do you know who he rebukes? It is Job's friends. He does not rebuke Job. He does challenge Job. He does, you know, question Job's strength, but he does not rebuke Job for his actions, for his crying out to God, trying to understand what is happening. So if you're suffering, you do not have to keep a stiff up, upper lip. You do not have to put on, you know, the everything's fine, brother, I'm great. Routine that we sometimes do. And on a side note, tangential to that, brothers and sisters in Christ, for those of you who know someone who is suffering, don't tell them that. Walk beside them, put your arm around them. Say, I'll carry this with you. Because we're called to be burden bearers. Not burden dumper owners, all right? That's a theological term I just made up. <laughs> Second, in the middle of suffering, it is hard to see what God is doing. It's hard. It clouds our judgment. Do you wonder, why, why did Gary read Psalm 77? Because as God led, your footprints were what? Not seen. But what was God doing? He was leading. He was still there. He was still working in the midst of all that. In the middle of the suffering, God is still working. And we have to understand that. And as hard as it is, we cannot allow the pain to cloud our judgment or our emotions to overrule our knowledge. Right? When we go back to Psalm 77, listen to what he says. He goes through and he does all the crying aloud and all the things. And then he says, I will appeal to this the years of the right hand. I will remember. So what he says is, I will ponder. I will remember. I will know what you have done. As hard as it is, as difficult as it is, as the suffering I am going through, I'm not going to let that cloud my emotions and impact my judgment on what I know about you. All right, we see this, 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 this brilliantly throughout the Psalms. Probably no better in Psalm 22. Who knows how Psalm 22 starts out? Anybody know? Jesus says it on the cross. What is it? Starts with my. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? God, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. I can't see you. I don't understand. Here's my emotions in verse 1 and verse 2. You have forsaken me. And he writes for 16, or 18 verses. How awful it is. The emotions that he is in, and he gets to verse nineteen. But you, Yahweh, do not be far off. Oh, you my help, come quickly to my aid, deliver my soul from the sword. So he's plead now, and then he gets the verse twenty, the end of verse twenty-one. You have rescued me. the horns of the wild ox and I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will praise you you who fear Yahweh praise him and you offspring of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him all you offspring of Israel listen to this verse 24 for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted first 19 verses is all emotion And again, it's all right. God says, pour it out. The Psalms pours out emotion. But by the time he gets to verse 19, he says, but this I know. And he says, I know that you have not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. God, I may not know what is going on, but I know that you have not forsaken me. That you're there it is in our greatest suffering sometimes even though we may not see what god is doing it is in our greatest suffering that philippians 3:10 shows us the truth of scripture where he says that i may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings jesus has suffered we have suffered And when we suffer, there is a fellowship with Jesus that is brought that no other emotion or no other situation brings. And even though it's hard, and even though it's there, God is at work. So you don't have to keep a stiff upper lip. Remember that God is still working. Number three, sometimes you just got to confess we can't see got to confess, we can't understand. We're not privy to everything God does. But we know this, there are no accidents in the world. There are absolutely no accidents in the world. When we come to this part of Scripture in John chapter 7, Jesus says to the disciples as he answers them that the glory of God may be seen. He says, this is what that sentence means to his disciples. Before the foundations of the world were laid. Before the fall in Genesis 3. Before the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. Before the incarnation and the fulfillment of that, of Galatians 4.4 4 and the fullness of time, where we read in Matthew that Jesus came. Before that, before all that happened, this man was slated and chosen by God, so that when Jesus arrives at this point, at this time in his life, in the life and the ministry of Jesus, in the life of this man, that God's works might be displayed in him. Why was he born blind? so that God's works and the glory of God can be displayed when Jesus says, put the mud on your eyes and go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Sometimes the suffering that we go through is because it's going to bring glory to God. Here's the hard part. John chapter 9 We see the outworking of that. John chapter 9, we see Jesus, why is this man born blind who sinned? He didn't. He didn't sin, his parents didn't sin, but that the glory of God may be revealed through him before the foundation of the world was set. This time was decreed. Blind man, we don't have his name. Interesting. We don't have his name. Take the mud, put it on your eyes, go wash in the pool at Siloam. He goes, he washes, he sees. And we see the outworking of the glory of God. Now here's where we all start to sputter and go, but Gary, but Gary, but Gary, but Gary, but Gary. I can't see it. Neither can I. Neither can I. The illustration that I have continually used, and the more I use it, the more I like it. That sounded a little prideful, didn't it? (laughs) It's God's weaving a tapestry. And we're on the bottom looking up underneath the tapestry. From the top, as God weaves it, you know exactly what it looks like. But from underneath, you have no clue what that tapestry is. But every now and then, God flips the tapestry over and we catch a glimpse. John chapter 9, we catch a glimpse. He flips the tapestry over for the disciples and the disciples see and they understand. And sometimes in our lives and in the suffering that we go through, God flips over the tapestry and we see and we understand. That is the exception. That is not the rule. And when the exception uh, happens, it hurts. Because we want to see. We want to know. And God says, lovingly, no. This one you don't get to know. And God not revealing that in his sovereignty does not make him unloving. It does not make him unkind. It does not make him mean. It simply means that in his perfect will, that was not for us to know. Will we know it in heaven? Maybe. Maybe not. But what we recognize is that In the suffering that we have. God knew that it was going to happen. How then through the suffering can we bring glory to God? That the might of God might be seen through us. And for every person going through suffering, that, that, that answers could be different. If I may use Mitch, I hadn't planned on using Mitch this morning, but if I may use Mitch. Some things are just extra in your mind. Picking at the Bible is a way to recompose your thoughts. I was in the hospital the day the doctors told Mitch there was nothing more they could do for him. For whatever reason, I was the only one there. I I don't know why. The first question I asked Mitch when we had sat there and we had thought and I finally was like, okay, I got to say something. I asked him, I said, Mitch, what do you want people to know? His answer was Gary, tell him I fought the fight. I finished the race. That may be the glory that is brought. That you finish the race. You finished strong. And in that testimony, and in his life, he gave glory to God. Because when I said that at his funeral, everybody nodded. And we have to understand as a believers that that's enough. That that's enough. And through that, God is honored and God is glorified. And one last thing this morning I want you to remember is this. You don't have to keep a step up for lip. You don't have to confess that you see everything. We need to understand that there are no, uh, that we don't see everything, but then We recognize that suffering and evil are frauds. They are frauds. And one day, they will be dealt with. Absolutely, one day. To say that God ignores suffering and evil is simply not true. Because here's the truth, God has dealt with it. Jesus stepped out of heaven to deal with evil. He stepped out of heaven to deal with suffering. He stepped out of heaven to deal with death. And he did this for you, for me, and for the world. And we have to recognize that there is coming a day when it will be dealt with. And we can read this, right? We can go to the end and we can read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The impostors have passed away. The frauds have passed away. And so when pain and suffering comes into our lives... It is hard, it is difficult not to focus like a laser beam on the suffering that we are going through because it encompasses our entire life. And again, as hard as it is, and I'm not saying don't deal with it, it's real, it's there. Okay, I've I've said that several times. At the same time, what we need to recognize is that's not where our focus ought to be. Our focus... And this is hard. Our focus needs to be and realize that the suffering has been dealt with. We need to focus our eyes on the truth that on an old rugged cross on the hills outside of Jerusalem where Jesus suffered and died for us and rose again on the third day, thereby defeating death, that that was where suffering and death was dealt with. Where it was defeated once and for all. And here's the beautiful promise that is made. Where we're told so, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Suffering and death has been dealt with. So, when you suffer, when it's difficult, we sing the song all the time Turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? Because He is the one who dealt with it. He is the one who defeated it so that in Him we may have life. And that the end of the story for a believer is not suffering. It is not death, but it is eternal life in the new heavens, in the New Jerusalem, where the former things have passed away, and for day for day after day, because there is no night, we will live in the light of our Savior, who took away death for us, who suffered for us, so that suffering in this world becomes nothing but a fleeting impostor of the glories and the riches of Christ that will be revealed to us in the end times. It's hard. It's difficult. But praise be to God. We have a God who loves us. We have a Savior who redeemed us. And we have the Holy Spirit who comforts us who looks at us in the midst of our suffering and says, this is not the end of the story. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like, and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.